Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Turn your great idea into a reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're showcasing your work or selling products of any kind with beautiful templates and the ability to customize just about anything, you can easily make a beautiful website yourself. And if you do get stuck, Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help. Head to squarespace.com slash so smart for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, when you're ready to have your dreams come true, when you're ready for reality to meet your passions, use the offer code so smart to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 141. Our guest in this episode of the You Are Not So Smart Podcast is Dave Levitan, a science journalist with a new book titled not a scientist, how politicians mistake, misrepresent, and utterly mangle science. So my name is Dave Levitan. Uh, I am a science journalist. And um, last year, I published a book called Not a Scientist, How Politicians Mistake, Misrepresent, and Utterly Mangle Science, which I think is why you're talking to me. So <laughs> it's a good place to start, I guess. In the book, Levitan takes us through 12 repeating patterns that politicians fall into when they mistake misrepresent, and mangle science. Some are nefarious and intentional, some based on ignorance, and some are just the normal business of politicians managing their public image or trying to appeal to their base. But as a foundation, and as his title, Levitan begins with the phrase, I'm not a scientist, which is a telltale rhetorical technique that, as he explains, politicians use when they are about to present an argument that well, would be better presented by someone who actually knew what they were talking about. I had been annoyed by that phrase, the, the I'm not a scientist phrase for for years. In fact, by the time I was um, doing the book, it was already sort of going out of fashion a little bit. <laughs> uh, it was really, you know, sort of used a lot more in, uh, I want to say, sort of 2009, 10, 11, um, almost always to do with climate change, but I, 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 it could certainly be used for other topics. Um, so it, it was sort of rattling around in my head a little bit. And then once I decided to use that as the title, um, which did sort of make a lot of sense to me, um, I, I went back and started trying to find its origins. And that's where the, the sort of the intro to the book comes from, where I found that Ronald Reagan actually used it way back in 1980. 
So yeah, the, the, the first one that I could find, uh, and I should, as I always say, I, I can't promise this is the very first time it was used like this, but it was the first one I could find, um, was in October of 1980. And this was so just toward the end of, of the 1980 presidential campaign. And Ronald Reagan, who was not yet president, was um, giving, he was answering some questions about environmental issues in, uh, at a campaign stop in Ohio. And someone asked him about um, about acid rain, which was a, a big deal back then. And sulfur dioxide is the is the primary component of acid rain. So he was talking about that, uh, and he said, and I'm just going to read this to you since it's I, I'll get it wrong otherwise. Um, he said, "I have flown twice over Mount St. Helens out on our west coast. I'm not a scientist, and I don't know the figures, but I just have a suspicion that that one little mountain out there." has probably released more sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere of the world than has been released in the last 10 years of automobile driving or things of that kind that people are so concerned about. So that that was the first one I could find. And it's about a different topic. Again, you know, usually it's about climate change when it's more recent, but it's kind of amazing how similar it was. You know, like it's it sounds almost the same. It's just a different pollutant they're talking about. Instead of carbon dioxide, it's sulfur dioxide. After this commercial break, we will sit down with Dave Levitan and talk a bit more about why this happens and then go through a few of the patterns that he has identified, get their definitions, examples, why they happen, and what we can do about it. All that after this break. Most diets fail, and I know that's true, because this year I finally did something right. I lost 56 pounds this year. I did it using a number of different techniques, using also a number of different apps, including the one I'm about to tell you about. Now, most diets fail because they make you change way too many foods all at once. When you want to fix the way you eat, psychologically, you should do the opposite. Make one change, do it slowly, let it stick, and then move on to the next change. And there is an app that will allow you to do this with the help of a real living human being, a nutritionist who will analyze your meals. That app is called One Fix. It's the One Fix app. They find one thing that's causing your body to store extra fat and they give you a fix. You do that one fix every day for one month. And if you're just doing this one fix, it's very easy. And when it becomes part of who you are, you can begin the next fix. If diabetes or heart disease runs in your family, an extra 30 pounds can be enough to make you worried. And diets are a terrible way to lose weight if you don't have some sort of psychological plan in place to make what you're doing work. When you want to make it permanent, you need to do one fix at a time. I highly recommend it. I've been using it. It's really neat. You take a picture of your food and that's it. They look at it, they do all the work, and then they will talk to you using like a messaging thing that's within the app, and you take their guidance, and you move on to the, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, and before you know it, you're looking great. Go to getonefix.com slash Y-A-N-S-S and use the code Y-A-N-S-S to get $50 off of your first month. That's 
getonefix.com slash Y-A-N-S-S and the code is Y-A-N-S-S to get $50 off of the first month. Once you download the app, a nutritionist, a real human being, will help you get started. Get one fix today at getonefix.com slash Y-A-N-S-S and the code is Y-A-N-S-S. Here we go. Let's talk about my favorite thing in the world. If you're constantly looking for new ways to better understand yourself and the world around you, you need a subscription to The Great Courses Plus. I get emails all the time from people who've been listening to me talk about this, and they're all like, hey, I really love this. Thank you so much. This was a really cool thing that you put into my life because with The Great Courses Plus, you get unlimited access to informative and engaging lectures on so many topics like psychology, history, science, even how to take better photos or play chess. And the one I keep telling you about, I love this one where it shows you how to see math. You know, it's visualizing mathematical ideas, which actually really helped me understand things that I'd heard about my entire life. They have thousands of fascinating lectures like those to choose from, all presented by award-winning experts, and new courses are added all the time. Enjoy them all on your schedule. Watch or listen to them anywhere with the Great Courses Plus app. I recommend their course, How You Decide, The Science of Human Decision-Making. Dr. Ryan Hamilton, a consumer psychologist, explores how factors such as emotions, social influences, and even evolution affects our decision-making. In this course, like most of their courses, you get 24 lectures. They average about half an hour each, like emotional influences on decision-making, the value curve and human decisions, self-regulation and choice, how habits make decisions easier, the role of heuristics and decisions, and much, much more. You are going to love The Great Courses Plus, and today you can enjoy How You Decide and any of their other lectures for free. Seriously, you should just do this to look through their catalog, okay? You will be blown away by the idea of some of these courses, things you didn't even think that people could teach you things about. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart to start this free trial and sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. I'm David McCraney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. In this episode, we're talking to Dave Levitan, the author of Not a Scientist. So where did you get the idea for this book? Uh, I was a staff writer uh, for factcheck.org, which I assume a lot of people know about. But um, just quickly, you know, it's a website that checks politician statements and explains why they're wrong about things. Um, they hired me in early 2015 to be their first ever sort of full-time staff writer. Um, they had covered science before, but not in a, in a really sort of systematic fashion. Uh, and so I, I was hired to do that. Um, they got a grant specifically to cover science, so that's where that came from. Um, and that, that's really where the idea for the book originated. In, in doing that job, I very quickly started to sort of see these patterns of deception when it came to science. What I think is interesting is that they don't tend to do it for other topics, right? Like, you don't hear that, at least in that format. I mean, they might sort of get to it in different ways, but that that line, I'm not a scientist, it just seems so ridiculous to me because you never hear any politician say, I'm not an economist. They just talk about taxes, mm-hmm. you know, like they or, or you know, I'm not... 
an expert in in the Middle East. They just talk about the Middle East. They just, or I'm not a I'm not a military expert, and they talk about dropping bombs on people. Like it's really sort of unique to science, at least as far as I've found. And I, I think that's I think there's a real reason for that. I think it's because it seems somehow more acceptable to not be a scientist, right? Like they we don't want our politicians to admit they don't know anything about taxes. Mm. <laughs> but but it it's But they don't, of, right? But they don't. No, they don't. They don't. Not on a not on the level that say someone who goes to school to become an economist would know or or become a tax lawyer or something. Um actually some of them probably are tax lawyers, but still. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think it, I think it's definitely set off from other topics, you know, and, and I, I think it's because science is sort of an easy thing to sideline, to make, to make seem ridiculous or, or silly or all the things that they do with scientific topics. Yeah. And the lay person, lay public, you know, uh, and, and, you know, and us, even people who cover science, we know that we're pretty ignorant about, you know, cellular, you know, automatons, or we're very, we're pretty ignorant about fluid dynamics. It's, um, I think there's some understanding that, um, you know, you're not a rocket scientist is a phrase that we have used for a long time. And um, so there's some understanding that to be a scientist, to be an expert, to be specialized in anything, um, you, you, there's a level of ignorance that we accept that we have that they don't. Um, but you're right. The thing, that, the thing that's most fascinating here is why wouldn't they say, you know, I'm not a general. I've never commanded the military in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not go to West Point. I know nothing about the Napoleonic Wars, but we must. <laughs> but we absolutely must invade Iraq tomorrow. Uh, right, right, exactly. Um, um, so, what do you think it is that we? Um, I know we've already asked this, but I just want to dig a little deeper. Like, what? Why would science be so singled out? What is it about it that seems acceptable uh, beyond that? The acceptance of ignorance, like, um, I mean, what? What? It, why? Why is this? I mean, it's a great question. I, I kind of think it's because the the sort of the topics in question, whether it's sulfur dioxide or carbon dioxide or you know even even un- unrelated scientific issues, I think it's because it's because most of us don't know anything about them. I mean, most of the public doesn't, and I mean, most of the public. Even if they're not experts in tax law, they still have to pay their taxes. <laughs> they right. still have to engage with these topics, or right, their right. kids go off to fight a war. Oh, like that's ha- it. okay, you know. And and I think that because even though you know the, the the aware among us know that say climate change is affecting all of us right now, it's pretty easy to go through your day and not think about climate change. You know, it, it's pretty easy to just not think about it. So. A politician, and again, I'm focusing on climate here, but you could say the same thing about, you know, vaccines or or, or about any number of topics um, that have a scientific component to them. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's because they're easy to ignore, and and, and the other things are not. Because because you know they're saying when they say I'm not a scientist, they're saying hey I'm not an expert. And uh, you know what? Actually, when I was looking at your book, the first thing it reminded me of you you know James Burke and connections. Um, the very first the. The very first episode of that, he holds up a uh, a device. And he says, "Do you know what this is?" And of course, there's no way because it's such a it's just a little device. It looks like a little black box with some doodads on it. Uh, and then he proceeds to spend like half an hour explaining how this blackout in New York City just about uh, ruined millions of people's lives, killed people. People were like on the operating table uh, in the subway, all sorts of stuff. Air traffic controllers. It was this mass chaos, and it was all caused by this one timing switch. This one, and he shows it, you know, to, you know he, ho- he turns it over and over in front of you on the camera. And 
unless you work in the industry. And even if you do, unless you work in that one specific slice of it, you have no idea what this device is. And even after he tells you what it is, you have no idea what it does. Um, and even if he tells you what it does, you have no idea how it led to a blackout. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then he's like, this one device is like determining life or death for people you love right now. Um, and that's like, then he's, you know, lays out, that's the supreme level of co- both connectedness and ignorance that we live within as a modern person. Um, and so I've thought about that a lot looking at your book because politicians have to legislate and make big decisions about a world in which they cannot possibly understand. Um, mm-hmm. So before we get into any specifics, what do you think about that? I mean, I think, I think generally it's not, it's not a problem in principle because yes, we elect people to represent us in very, you know, to, in the Senate or in Congress or, or as president. And we, we are, we know that they're not going to be experts in most of the things they have to deal with, but we just accept that they have experts around. I mean, the, it's such a basic concept that yeah, you would just listen to the people who know the thing, <laughs> and 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 whatever the thing is, and that will probably help. I mean, it doesn't mean you're going to be perfect in every decision you make, but it probably will help. And it's it's kind of amazing when when we have politicians who don't want to listen to those experts. And I mean, you know, today is is a particularly egregious example of that just generally in Washington. I mean, there isn't even a science advisor yet. He hasn't even appointed one uh, or or even nominated one um, in spite of the fact that statutorily he kind of has to. But <laughs> uh, so, I mean, but yeah, I, I think in, in concept, I mean, like a lot of our system of government, if people are operating in good faith, it'll still be fine. It's when they stop operating in good faith that yeah. it's not fine. Yeah. I, I, it doesn't bother me that they're that they have to legislate on on vaccines and 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 you know reproductive health and on climate change as long as they were listening willing to listen to the experts on those things. It's just that when they're not, that it's right. Wow, <laughs> what a weird time. Um, it's the it's the, both the most. I mean, I read just recently that like uh like like the the amount of information that that you know is available within like universities and libraries has uh we have generated more since two thousand eight since before 2008 oh, wow. you know? and weird. like, like yeah. going back, like going back to all the history. And, um, so we're in the most complex time ever with the most stuff to know. Mm-hmm. And then like, and then we have the quote unquote leader of the free world is like, eh, Oh, well, I'll wing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll go with my gut on this one. Yeah. Ah, uh, uh, my real estate expertise, uh, will get, get us through. Um, okay. So the, um, here's a weird question before we get into the weeds. Why don't so you talk about how this is uh, this technique of saying I'm not a scientist is sort of this rhetorical crawfishing. You know, you can um, it's a way to get out of having to actually talk about something you don't know anything about. Um, why don't they just say I don't know? Uh, I mean, yeah, that's what that's what a scientist would say, right? I mean, <laughs> scientists are trained to to be fine with not knowing something, to be fine with uncertainty and everything. I uh, I think that's just a political tick, right? I mean. I think politicians are generally trained to to never admit that sort of weakness. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I would prefer a, a politician who just says, you know what, I'm not sure, I will try and find out. But that's, yeah, I mean, it probably just is a sign of, you know, trying to sound strong at every possible point, I yeah. guess. You know, in general, pol- a politician's never going to tell you when they don't know something. Um, mm-hmm. So it's good to make keep that as a you know, rule of thumb when dealing with politicians. 
Um, it's true. Yeah. So uh, they they what they are telling you might actually be a reworded version of "I have no idea what I'm talking about." <laughs> <laughs> that is a good thing to keep in mind. I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> So we'll, I assume you put the most important thing first. So we'll first thing we'll, we'll talk about is oversimplification. Uh, and if you could define what that means uh, in your term, uh, based off the book itself, what is oversimplification? Um, well, first of all, I would not say it's, I put the most important one first. Oh, I would say okay. I, put, I would put the simplest one first. Okay. Oh, nice. <laughs> but if you want to start with that one, that, that's fine. Um, um, okay. We'll start with the simplest, and then you tell me what the most important is, and we do that one. Okay, great. Um, so the oversimplification is sort of among the more self-explanatory titles of these. I mean, it, when a politician takes a, a often very complicated sci- scientific topic and boils it down to sort of soundbite-sized uh, and completely ruins the actual science in the process, um, this is. I think it's important to make the distinction that this isn't just trying to explain something clearly. It is very important for both a scientist and a politician, not to mention a journalist, to be able to ex- explain a complicated topic in simple terms. That's fine if you're doing it diligently and well. It's when they take that idea of trying to boil something down and sort of use it to their advantage to completely ruin what the actual science is that you get the oversimplification. Mm-hmm. And, and so, like, uh, what's a like a really good salient example? And you can pull one straight from the book if you if you like. Sure. Um, so, the the one that I that I led the book with that I do think is a pretty both important one and just sort of interesting one is is to do with um, a whole lot of politicians talking about uh, fetal pain, the pain that a fetus supposedly feels while in the womb. Um, you get every couple of years, and they did it again last year. Um, the Republicans in the House and sometimes the Senate take it up. They try to pass a bill that they call the pain-capable uh, unborn – I'm going to get the name wrong here – something about pain in, in, in a fetus, um, although they call it an unborn child. And the idea being that at 20 weeks, science has told us uh, the fetus feels pain. And they will get up in, in, the, in the House chamber or in, on TV and say this over and over and over in just those simple terms. At 20 weeks, a fetus feels pain. Which sounds very sort of scientific, like we have figured this out. You get to 20 weeks, and suddenly you can feel pain. Uh, this is absolute bullshit. That doesn't make any sense, actually. Um, what science does tell us is actually pretty difficult to say for sure, but it's probably closer to 27 or 8 weeks before the sort of neuroanatomy is in place to actually feel pain. But it's tough anyway because pain is a subjective experience. I mean, I don't know that you're feeling pain until you tell me you're feeling pain or scream about it, you know. But if you're a fetus, that's kind of hard to do. So they are taking this very complicated topic. People have tried to study this a lot um, and and boiling it down to this really pithy soundbite that can really sort of, you know, induce a sort of emotional response like oh no don't hurt the the thing that can feel pain when in fact there's almost no chance they're right about that mm. so yeah that's that's an example that i always i mean and it keeps coming up too they do I literally do this every couple of years so always the same thing so why is this technique used uh and you can roll right in from that what is the best way to, to either um combat its effects or take notice of it and not let it uh you know ruin your thought processes. Sure. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's used because um, if you have a policy position 
that goes against established science, the easiest way to to sort of subvert that is to make people think the science says another thing. And because, as we've talked about, so we're, most of the public are not experts, the easiest way to do that is to keep it really simple. <laughs> to say something very, very simple that is also wrong, but some, but has some sort of emotional resonance, right? So by saying it for something like that, or, or another example is people talking about gateway drug effects. Again, very simple. It's a gateway drug. Well, no, science is really complicated on that one, too. You know, so like, but when you say that, you really can induce an emotional response, which will move people toward your side of an issue. So I think that's the, the basic premise for it. Um, in terms of the best way to sort of recognize it or deal with it, I think, I mean, it, the, the basic idea would be to remember that science is hard <laughs> and, that, and that some of these complicated topics are probably not as simple as a bunch of elected officials might try and make you think. Yeah. So, you know, something like something like when a fetus feels pain, if you just say that to yourself, if that sounds complicated, then it probably is. And and then, I mean, I, I think from there, you just, you know, try and do some reading, try and realize why they're doing it, that sort of thing. What was the, the most the the most important topic, since I thought that it was up front? What was it really for you, the one that was the, the, media, the beating heart of the book? Um, you know, that's an interesting question. I don't think I ever really thought of one that way, uh, in terms of sort of being the most important. Um, people have asked me sort of, what's your, what's your favorite, which isn't quite the right term. It's more mm. like least favorite, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I guess, I guess you could say, what, what, what do you think is the most damaging or the good. most, yeah. has the most impact or something? Mm. Um, I, I think probably, it would be the ridicule and dismiss, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's go there because this one's uh, this one involves something that drives me fucking crazy. So let's uh, let's yeah. talk. Okay, okay. Well, yeah, that, that, I agree. It drives me fucking crazy too. It, it, it's the one that like like sort of hurts the most when I hear it. Yes. Um, so yeah, okay. So the ridicule and dismiss, um, not not the best title in, of all of them. It could have been better, probably. But uh, the point is that a lot of times politicians will describe some bit of science, often basic science, so you know, basic scientific research, um, in silly-sounding or ridiculous or absurd-sounding language um, as a way to make it seem like we shouldn't be doing that bit of science, mm -hmm. and hence we shouldn't be doing a whole lot of science because science costs money and blah, blah, blah. We shouldn't spend all this money on things that are ridiculous. So, um, you know, one of the ones I, I included in the book was, was about um, was Rand Paul, who loves to do this. He does this all the time. He still does. I think he did it like a month or two ago. I heard mm -hmm. him do it again. Um, he, he'll, he'll take some specific grant from NIH or NSF and describe it in like very silly sounding terms. So the one that I, I talked about was about fruit fly research. And he said something about how fruit fly, they, they spent a million dollars uh, trying to see if male fruit flies prefer younger female fruit flies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he does this in a speech and it gets a laugh because, yeah, that sounds dumb. Why oh, he, would you he says, spend? you quote him in the book, he says, we could have pulled the audience and saved a million bucks. Uh, so when I saw it in your book, I loved it. The, and uh, I, I loved it because I hated it. Because um, uh, you, you, the Huckabee thing, that was, you had it as your initial example. If you, can you recall yeah. that? Uh, the, the, the crazy thing he said? <laughs> Yeah, it was um, – so he was talking about um, – I mean, it, it, he's been making terrible jokes about climate change stuff for a while. And this one, um, he's, he was – I think he was criticizing that Obama had said that climate change is among the, the greatest national security threats to the country. 
And so he said something about how, um, you know, most people are more scared of a beheading than they are of a sunburn. <laughs> That's what he said. Yeah. That and, is and, what and he said. The beheading meaning, you know, ISIS is going to cut your head off and we're more scared of that than we are of a sunburn. Yeah. And it's just, and so he's reducing, you know, all of climate science down to a sunburn, which is, I mean, just insanely stupid to begin with because sunburns have nothing to do yeah. with this it's at not, all. It's but. not just dumb, it's it's wrong. It's like, it, it's both barrels. It's right. dumb, dumb and wrong. <laughs> I, I think that, I think the examples that Huckabee, I, I have two or three of him in the book, and I think his probably win for sort of being most wrong, like farthest away from right. It's <laughs> uh, really impressive sometimes. The, I mean, those those sorts of arguments are, are truly infuriating because it really can, I think, sort of undermine the public's faith in in scientific research and and spending the the 30 some odd billion dollars on NIH every year is one of the best investments the government makes. I mean, it's yeah. not even close, you know, and, or, or spending the money to do research on climate change so that, you know, Florida might not disappear. Yeah. Too late, and, and let's be clear to the audience the you know, climate change is about, not about sunburns. Uh, <laughs> it like, is not. Like, why, just if you could, just for the show, why is he incorrect about that? Why is that a dumb thing to say? So, I mean, climate change has to do with carbon dioxide trapping, I mean, and other gases, trapping heat inside the atmosphere and warming up the planet. And it has nothing to do with getting a sunburn when you stand outside for too long. <laughs> like, literally nothing to do with it. The, I mean, in the book, I said the only possible connection I could think of was that he was mixing it up with the ozone hole. That's exactly the, it. the hole in the ozone Yes. Layer. And I, I think that might be what he was saying, that... That because you know we've we emitted these other gases, hydrofluorocarbons and chlorofluorocarbons, yes. and those were very bad, and they react with ozone up in the the stratosphere, and they created this hole. Which yes, if you were standing under it, would probably increase your exposure to UV rays. <laughs> but th- I mean, that's just so unrelated to climate change. I mean, it's just not even close. I totally so, think that's what it was because because in the eighties, in the late eighties, there was there was a lot of that. Like you know, RoboCop had people walking around with with. With uh, you know, like two inch thick uh, layer of um, sunscreen because the, the mm-hmm. ozone layer thing was really it was a big deal in the news for about three years. So yeah, and that's and that's all the last time you paid attention to <laughs> that, that topic. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so um, those are all great examples, and the fly thing really bothers me. But we didn't we didn't really explain why that's so silly. I mean, it's silly. I'll say something, and I want you to just go with it. But you know, it's you know, just just because scientists are studying fruit flies doesn't mean that we're only I mean, even if we were only learning more about fruit flies, that in and of itself is worthy of our attention. But no, the research that goes into that we the things we learn about fruit flies um, don't just get applied to fruit flies. Just take it from there. Sure. So yeah, I mean, a fruit fly is is a model organism. Like like we we study mice, we study zebrafish, we study rats, we study all sorts of things that we consider models for humans. The whole point is to understand humans. <laughs> we don't really care what happens to fruit flies or why they prefer younger female fruit flies or whatever the actual study was. But um, yeah, so he's totally sort of missing the point of what a mo- model organism does. And in fact, fruit flies in particular are one of the most useful model organisms there is. I mean, there have been, I think it's four or now maybe up to five Nobel Prizes specifically on fruit fly research because 
studying them helps us understand so much about ourselves. They're very easy to, to you know, they reproduce really fast. They're easy to manipulate their genes. So it's a very useful sort of uh, of model. And so that particular study that, that um, Rand Paul was talking about had to do with how sort of um, sexuality promotes healthy aging. And when you say it that way, it sounds a whole lot better than the way he said it. <laughs> and again, this has to do, you can then apply the things that, that are learned from these sorts of experiments to to things that that are relevant to us. I mean, I, and and this is an important thing to to remember. I think when when people when politicians use this sort of tactic, they're they're ignoring how science works in the sense of this sort of stepwise, uh, one thing on top of the other sort of progression. The the single study about fruit flies is probably not going to change our lives in a meaningful way. However, decades of research on similar lines of inquiry will probably change our lives in meaningful ways. And it's just, it doesn't make any sense to pick out tiny little bits of this sort of broad spectrum of research that people do and criticize them for being a waste of money. That's just not how it works, like at all. There's going to be plenty of things that we spend money on that, yeah, when you look back as something of a dead end or it didn't quite pan out, that's that's just the way things are. But if you if you stop spending money on the whole broad spectrum, you're going to miss out on the things that really do come in handy or really change how we, how we live or, or just change the world in general. Yeah. What's the best way to combat this? Like this is, this comes up a lot. And uh, I hear, I even hear, this is something that you might actually hear at Thanksgiving. This is something you might actually hear at work. Um, You might hear this uh, in conversation um, with friends. What, is what's what's the best way to come come at this this idea that you know oh those scientists they're studying the sea slug and they should be more concerned with cancer what 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 do you think yeah i mean that's a great question i mean i, I mean if i knew how to how to solve everyone's thanksgiving conversation problems <laughs> I, I probably would have done that already but um i i think i mean you know i'll put in a plug for the what's called the the golden goose awards do you know them no so okay, so the, the back in the seventies, a senator named William Proxmire used to give out the the Golden Fleece Awards, which was basically the same thing that Rand Paul was doing. He would pick out some some bit of gov- what he called government waste and give them a fake award for being so wasteful. Um, but there is a, a counter to that called called the Golden Goose Awards, which is more recent, and they they give an award every year to like weird scientific studies that if you describe them the way that Rand Paul might describe them, uh, they'll sound ridiculous. But these particular studies ended up having enormous effects, like really positive effects. So there was one about um, giving massages to baby rats, to rat pups. Mm -hmm. And that sounds insane. Why would you do that? Turns out the things we learned from that told us all sorts of new things about how to manage premature babies and to how to basically help save their lives and improve their outcomes. And so there are estimates that that individual study has saved not only lives, but billions of dollars. So I don't know, maybe that's a good way to combat this. Tell people that these things sometimes do happen. And they give out multiple ones of these awards every year. It's not that rare. Um, and I mean, and maybe maybe that's sort of a weird way to approach it because we shouldn't we shouldn't be asking for miraculous outcomes from every scientific study because uh, again that's just not how it works but i don't know maybe that's maybe that's a way to make a dent in someone who seems resistant to the idea that science works like that you know yeah hmm um and 
Let's see. There's one. Uh, there's one I thought was was really weird. Uh, I think people are pretty familiar with cherry picking. We can p- skip that. But uh, this one's got a great title: "Butter Up and Undercut." Um, so, what is this? Is this like some kind of uh, political negging? What's going on with this? <laughs> yeah. So, um, the butter up and undercut. Um, it, it, this is a sort of a weird one because uh, it, it's not really. It's not quite getting something wrong, getting a scientific thing wrong, the way that most of the other examples in in the book are. Um, the idea here is that often a politician with a particular sort of you know policy goal or agenda in mind will use a bit of misdirection, where they'll sort of hype up the thing and say how great it is, while trying to also sort of cut its legs out. So a great example has to do with NASA. Um, Ted Cruz in particular, but multiple people have done this, where uh, NASA is just too popular to criticize. No one really criticizes NASA outright because people like NASA. You know, they like the moon landings and, and going to Mars and things like that. It's hard to it's hard to get a lot of traction if you're going to criticize NASA. However, NASA also is the primary source of climate re- research in the, in the U.S. government. So that is something that people like Ted Cruz do want to take out. So you'll hear this a lot. Well, they'll... they'll They'll introduce some bit of legislation or, or, you know, cuts to funding by saying how great NASA is. And then then they'll just say, like, okay, but we also have to stop, like, an enormous portion of what it does. So it, it's sort of a, a tough one to see through or, or even notice because they're not really – I mean, they're just saying how great NASA is, <laughs> you know. Uh, or, or, I mean, this happens with, with NIH, too. But, I mean, again, it's hard to criticize NIH as a as – a, body as a governmental agency right it's it does it funds a lot of research it does Mm. important things there's the national cancer institute like you can't criticize these things so they they go out of their way to say how great they are and over on the other side of the stage they're they're writing budgets that completely destroy these things so again it's a tough one to see but it is sort of an important one yeah what 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 is the i mean is it it's so strange i think you used an example where someone was saying nasa's was it ted cruz it was like nasa's the greatest yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then like, but also I'm not giving you any money. Um, <laughs> it's so weird. Like so weird. Um, let's, let's talk about one more and then we'll, we'll wrap things up. The, um, the nitpick. Um, this one is like really a real rhetorical Jedi move. So if we could go into what it is and a good example of it. Sure. So yeah, the, the little literal nitpick is, is basically just um, trying to, trying to make a, a sort of a scientific claim that sounds like it's probably wrong and 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 seems wrong, but they use very specific words so that if called on it, they can sort of say, "No, I'm actually right." Like I win. <laughs> it's a way to win an argument that is like a very sneaky way to win an argument. So the the best example I think uh, it has to do with fracking for natural gas. Um, the a lot of people will say something like, "Fracking for natural gas has." has never caused uh, or has caused not one single instance of contamination of groundwater, which I don't know if you've been paying attention to fracking as an issue. It sounds probably a little weird, right? I mean, there's been movies about contamination and people's tap water catching on fire and all this. Like, how could that possibly be true? But by the very literal definitions of the words, it's probably correct because fracking itself refers to breaking up of rocks a mile underground to let out the natural gas. So just that process. And it's probably true 
that just that process has never actually caused groundwater to be contaminated. It's all the stuff surrounding that process that has caused groundwater to be contaminated. So my favorite version of this is, you know, there have been multiple cases where a whole bunch of what's called fracking fluid, this collection of 500 chemicals that they send underground, uh, it's very dangerous stuff, uh, a whole bunch of times this has spilled up on the surface. So they have it, they brought it there in order to frack a well, and it spills. And so now that gets into the water, which obviously is bad. Uh, but that wasn't fracking that contaminated the water. It was spilling some fracking fluid. It's insane to make that distinction because why would you have fracking fluid there if you're not going to frack? <laughs> but that is actually the case that they make, like that there have been no cases of contamination. Therefore, it's a safe thing to do. Mm. It, it's truly sort of an insane way to look at it. But it is multiple people have used this argument. Um. This is such a strange and interesting uh, book. I want to commend you for finding this uh, interesting way to talk about this because I think we've all seen this and maybe we didn't realize how pervasive and uh, possibly damaging it is to democracy and just our society itself. So good job there, uh, making uh, giving me a new thing to be uh, angry about. Um, I do my best. Yes. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I was concerned. I already disliked, uh, you know, so much of politics, and now there's this. There's even more to dislike. Thank you. Um, <laughs> do you, you know, maybe we, that's what we'll do. Let's end on a good note. Uh, what are some examples you can think of where this, where people are doing it right, or where this is like, uh, there are, people are avoiding this, or people who have gotten the science right? Oh man, that's a good question, and it's probably when I don't have a lot of things off the top of my oh, head no. because I tend I tend to write about the bad things. Um, <laughs> I mean, there there are plenty of examples of of politicians being good about science. I mean, one of my one of the the sort of uh, politicians I, I I guess admire is uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, is the senator from Rhode Island. He has been giving one speech every week for I don't even remember now. I think he might be over two hundred straight weeks um, where he goes to the Senate floor and gives a speech about climate change, and he uses all of, you know, best available research. I mean, he's just, he's citing things all the time. He's talking about NASA and NOAA and uh, the IPCC and all the very, you know, very available research that you could find if you wanted to use what the experts actually know. Um, so that's one example. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I guess that's the main one I can think of right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, uh, to give people a chance to keep up, keep up with you and what you're doing. How can they find you on the internet and beyond? Uh, okay, well, they can find me on Twitter, just at Dave Levitan. That's one way. Uh, and they can find me at my website, DaveLevitan.com. Um, basically, just Google that name and you'll find me. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. To find more episodes like this one, go to youarenotsosmart.com where you can find show notes, back episodes. You can also find episodes at Stitcher and SoundCloud and iTunes and anywhere you can find episodes of podcasts. If you'd like to support this show, go to patreon.com slash youarenotsosmart. Pitching in $1 toward this one-person operation will get you the show ad-free, but at higher amounts, you can get T-shirts and posters and signed books. You can also find that merchandise over at youarenotsosmart.com. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog on Twitter. Follow me at David McCraney on Twitter. And we're also over at Facebook with a lot of people over there where you can talk about the episodes in the comment sections. 
The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace, interstitial music by Incompetech, and this music is Banjo Apocalypse. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America. 